Welcome back. Thanks for being with us here on a Wednesday afternoon. Rob Breckenridge with you. Again, our telephone number 403-974-TALK. That's 974-8255. We'll get to more of your phone calls coming up later this hour. Uh, so regarding the situation in the Middle East, fighting continuing obviously in Gaza between Israel and Hamas. Uh, there is international pressure, to be sure, on Israel. But also, you know, with that, though, needs to be a realistic perspective on what we expect that to achieve. And, and where we want all of this to go, if Hamas is still a presence in Gaza, if Hamas is still in charge of Gaza, well, how do we move forward? What does a ceasefire accomplish since, of course, there was one in place on October 6th, the day before this horrific terrorist attack? So yesterday, though, the U.N. Uh, General Assembly passed a resolution pretty overwhelmingly calling for a ceasefire. Now, Canada uh, seems to be shifting in its, uh, its position here because Canada voted in favor of this resolution, which calls for a ceasefire, which does not condemn or even otherwise make any reference to Hamas. And that's being met with a lot of criticism, even within the Liberal caucus. Uh, MP Marco Medicino says, I disagree with Canada's vote of the United Nations. I do not support its call for Israel to agree to what is effectively an unconditional ceasefire. Liberal MP Anthony Housefather says, quote, in my view, any secession of hostilities requires Hamas to release all hostages, lay down arms and surrender. Hamas, a terrorist organization, is entirely responsible for starting a war. I disagree with our vote at the U.N. today. This was the prime minister just about an hour ago before heading into question period, uh, aligning his position on all of this. In the face of an unfolding humanitarian catastrophe, we continue to call for a return to humanitarian pauses. We're going to keep uh, participating in urgent international efforts towards a sustainable ceasefire, but it cannot be one-sided. We need to see Hamas lay down its arms. We need to see it release all hostages. We need to see it stop using civilians as human shields. And there cannot be any future role for Hamas in the governance of Gaza. In the meantime, we're going to continue to press and work with international partners towards uh, a two-state solution where Palestinians and Israelis can live in peace and security in internationally recognized borders. We will continue to use all the tools that we have and look at tools that uh, others are using as well to continue uh, to put pressure on Hamas uh, to uh, cease its violence. Okay, so there's some fair points in the prime minister's statement there. But why then did we vote for this resolution? Because the points he made there are not in this resolution. So is there some hypocrisy or some mixed messages in Canada's uh, position on all of this? Well, joining us for some thoughts, I'm very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon. Shimon Fogel is president and CEO of the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, CIJA.ca is the website. Shimon, good to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Rob, it's good to be back with you. Uh, so first of all, your reaction to, to Canada's vote yesterday? Well, as we expressed in, in, our, in our formal uh, responses, um, we were disgusted um, with um, the about face um, in Canada's approach. And uh, to be frank, Rob, you laid it out in the intro um, perfectly. Um, there were elements um, that must serve as preconditions for any consideration of a ceasefire. Uh, the Prime Minister articulated them in the, in the clip that you played, um, and they were shockingly absent um, 
not in the operative paragraphs, not in the preamble, um, in no part of the resolution that Canada supported yesterday. And what is especially frustrating is that only hours before Canada issued a statement, uh, a joint statement with Australia and New Zealand, which articulated those preconditions as necessary in order to move towards a ceasefire. A ceasefire that of course, everybody would like. Nobody is sanguine or dismissive about uh, the loss of civilian lives. But uh, those preconditions connected the dots between the loss of life and those responsible for the loss of life. And it isn't the Israeli Defense Forces, it's Hamas, um, which poses a threat as much to Israel as it does to its own Palestinian constituency, for which it seems to have no regard since, uh, as you pointed out, they use them as human shields. They prevent them from accessing humanitarian aid. They block the humanitarian corridors created by the IDF in order for them to get safe passage. Uh, and they exploit their civilian institutions like hospitals, like schools, like mosques, uh, in order to embed um, their military effort. Now, the Prime Minister's comments today, I think, more closely reflect the statement that was released yesterday, a joint statement with the Prime Ministers of Australia and New Zealand. So in between, we have this vote at the United Nations, which seems to contradict that. So is, is, it, is it hypocrisy? Is it mixed messaging? Is, is the government confused about its own position? I mean, how, how do we make sense of this? So I don't think that it's confused about its position, um, and it depends how cynical, Rob, you want to be in interpreting uh, developments yesterday, because they came out with a statement that resonated strongly with the Jewish community, uh, and then it's almost as if they, um, uh, what's the expression, um, bait and switch? Mm -hmm. um, so um, they mollified the Jewish community, figuring they had that out of the way. They then turned their attention to those forces within Canada, and they have been ugly over the last eight weeks. Um, you've experienced them in Calgary and oh, yeah. in communities across the country um, who have been demanding uh, that the government uh, call for a ceasefire um, and step away from its uh, expressed support for Israel. Uh, they've been violent in uh, advancing their demands, uh, but Perhaps the government felt it had to bow to that pressure and toss them a bone as well. So, you know, on the one hand, they issue a statement that pleases the Jews. On the other hand, um, they vote in favor of a resolution, even though it's a departure from their stated policy, uh, in the hopes that that is going to mollify or satisfy uh, these angry voices uh, of the um, Palestinian uh, Arab Muslim community that have made common costs with the radical left, on the other hand. Um, I don't know if that's going to work. I can tell you that from the perspective of the Jewish community, um, there is almost universal upset with the government, uh, a feeling of betrayal, of abandonment, uh, not just of us, but of principles that had informed Canada's positions since the beginning of, of this conflict on October 7th. Yeah, and I think that's an important point because, you know, these, these principles exist for a reason. These principles do matter. And, you know, it seems that, that it, it begs a larger conversation if indeed we're abandoning them or moving away from them as, as to why we would be doing that. Uh, look, I get that people don't 
like to see what's happening. This this conflict is is very difficult, but at the same time, you know, to lock back into a, an a, you know an untenable status quo that that led to October seventh in the first place that that can't be the answer either, Shimon. So, what what needs to be? What what is the solution to all of this? Look, if we're if we're going to measure it. Um, um, in terms of the loss of life, then, you know, the call for a ceasefire is understandable. But if we take one step back and we recognize that the dynamic that's currently in place, rinse and repeat cycle of Hamas um, undertaking destructive um, um, uh, provocations, uh, and in the case of October 7, almost unspeakable ones, um, and triggering a hot war, uh, then things calming down only to be repeated 12 months, 18 months, 24 months. It's condemning Palestinians to unending suffering and misery uh, at the hands of a tyrannical regime that has um, uh, Gaza by the throat. Um, the only way to break that cycle is to remove Hamas from the equation. And that was the objective of, of the military campaign undertaken by Israel. And it's one that Israelis are determined to pursue until Hamas is no longer a force that can pose an existential genocidal threat to the Jewish state um, or suppress the aspirations of the Palestinian people. So what message would you have for the prime minister then? I think he has to show principle um, and political will to make the tough decisions. Look, at we did that in Mosul. 40,000 civilians lost their lives in one city over an eight-month period as the coalition forces um, um, targeted um, ISIS. Mm -hmm. uh, the same thing happened in Afghanistan. Uh, so it's not as if there is no precedent for making the tough and painful decisions in order to achieve the long-term goal. More Palestinian lives will be lost if Hamas is left in place than if um, Israel is permitted um, to um, finish the job um, and to remove Hamas from the equation. And Canada has to uh, return to the principal position of um, not just standing with its um, um, explicit ally in the region, but of making good on its recognition that Hamas is a terrorist entity. It's listed as such here in Canada. Canada has said that Hamas cannot have a role going forward. And the only way to ensure that is to destroy their capacity both at the military and political level. And Canada has to get back uh, in a place that ensures that that is going to be the result. Absolutely. We'll see where it all goes from here. Much more at uh, CIGA.ca, as mentioned. Shimon, thank you so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Always appreciate it. Rob, always a pleasure. Be well. Likewise. All the best. Uh, that is uh, Shimon Fogel, president and CEO of the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs. So some, some frustration, clearly, some disappointment in terms of how the government's position seems to be shifting, but a little bit all over the map at the same time. We mentioned uh, some of the dissension within liberal ranks over this. Marco Mendicino, who's no longer in cabinet, probably wouldn't have said anything if, if he still was. But, you know, kudos to him for, for speaking up. And uh, Anthony Housefather. 
We mentioned him. This, this was Anthony Hill's father earlier today, speaking with the reporters and expressing his, his disappointment. I was very disappointed in the vote at the United Nations. I, I don't think it was consistent with the statement we issued yesterday that imposed conditions on what would it take for a ceasefire to happen. And to me, if Hamas does not lay down his arms, uh, there is no ceasefire. That, that is just un, unacceptable that Israel is placed in a position when Hamas broke the ceasefire on October the 6th and broke the temporary ceasefire last week. One at a time, I will answer everybody. Can you still be a liberal? I mean, I'm not going to get into things that are, I mean, a, a liberal, I, I, you, my convictions for the last, since I've been a teenager, have generally been with the Liberal Party. I'm disappointed in this vote. Um, and, uh, and, and let's stick to the substantive stuff about the vote. The government's position is that they voted in favor of the motion, but put sort of a statement out in order to explain what they The motion is the motion. The motion was an unconditional call for a ceasefire. I do not support an unconditional call for a ceasefire. I don't believe the majority of my constituents support an unconditional call for a ceasefire. And it's my obligation as an individually elected MP to speak out when I think that Canada has abandoned its traditional position at the UN of support of Israel at a time when Israel's at war. According to the Market Surveillance Administrator, in the last quarter, power prices were 173% higher than the cost to produce electricity. We are not only address, addressing the generation cost, which is only about a third of the bill for a ratepayer, we are also looking at key uh, directives to address transmission, distribution, uh, retail, uh, and administration costs. Okay, so that was uh, both from yesterday, NDP energy critic Kathleen Ganley and Alberta's affordability and utilities minister, uh, both talking about electricity prices and, and some shared agreement here. Uh, that maybe there is a problem in Alberta. Maybe we need to see some changes. So the NDP says there's a lack of competition, and that's contributing to what's known as economic withholding, which they say has been a big factor in some of the price spikes we've seen this year. So they say that needs to change. They want to see an independent investigation into uh, Alberta's electricity market. Now, the minister has mentioned, um, noting that some changes are indeed coming. But uh, also noting that, you know, there, there is some relief on the horizon. We see a lot of uh, thermal generation coming online before the end of this year and in the first half to three quarters of next year, which is what is um, creating the basis for that prediction that price will continue to go down. Right. And that's where all signs are pointing uh, to some lower prices coming in the new year, potentially significantly lower. And, th and that's absent any restructuring of Alberta's electricity system. So does anything need to change? What's been causing these higher prices? What is economic withholding? And is that something that the government needs to deal with? Well, someone who follows all of this very closely, Blake Schaefer, associate professor in the Department of Economics and School of Public Policy of the University of Calgary, with a focus on electricity markets, energy transitions, and climate policy. Uh, he joins us all on the line here this afternoon. Professor Schaefer, great to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. Thanks, thanks for inviting me. Uh, let's start with this accusation from the opposition, or what they point to, what's known as economic withholding, and the role that might be playing in some of the, the recent trends we've seen in electricity prices. What is economic withholding, and, and to what extent can we point a finger at blame in its direction? Sure. So I'll start with what is it. it it's, um, it's less nefarious than withholding sounds. It, it's simply pricing up. It's like any other 
market, you know, airline flights at Christmas time, if there's high demand for something and there's not much competition, you can price where you want to. Um, and in other markets, like if you were to set up a hamburger restaurant and charge too much for your, or charge a high price for your hamburger, you'd have some discipline. So demand would discipline you. If you tried to charge $50 for a burger, you probably wouldn't get very many customers. Um, and you'd also have discipline from the supply side. Other competitors would say, I can, I can sell burgers for cheaper than that. Right. But in electricity, there, that's, there's challenges there because demand is pretty insensitive to the price. Many of us are on fixed prices. Most people are simply unaware of power prices, pretty inelastic. Um, and on the supply side, it just takes time. And we are going to see that. And we maybe we'll get to that in this interview. We are seeing a huge supply response coming right now. And in fact, the prices next year or this coming year are looking really cheap again as a result. But it just takes time. So it's not nefarious or illegal. I should say, it's not illegal. It's part of our market. It might sound unsavory. It's, it's, the concept is prices will get high and that brings in new supply. And that is what we are seeing in terms of how responsible is it for the recent spate of high prices, it's the majority reason. I've, I've done a, a paper on this where we did a deep dive into the change in bidding behavior once there was more concentration of ownership in the market. Right. And it resulted in about two-thirds to three-quarters of the increase in price was explained by the increased concentration of ownership leading to um, suppliers to raise their prices. I mean, are there structural reasons as to, to why maybe we don't have the, the level level of competition or, or supply? I mean, you know, we talk about what the, the province might be delivering in terms of some changes. Like, can we point to, to anything in particular? Well, we have a few things here. Um, we're, we're a relatively small market um, in the sense that we have limited connections with our neighbors. We have small transmission connections to Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and BC, um, but they're relatively small as compared to the size of, of our of our market. And so, in other places, you have either something like Texas, where they also have limited interconnections, but the size of their market is about seven times ours. So there's enough competition as a result of that. Or you have fragmented, like smaller individual markets, but they're well connected. So you get competition from neighboring jurisdictions. So the size of our market and our lack of connectedness is, is one issue. The, the market design that Alberta chose in, in 2000 when they decided to deregulate also lends itself to these real volatile prices. Um, it's called an energy-only market. Texas has something similar. Most other deregulated power markets, so the ones that aren't like the rest of Canada where it's just a regulated market, you pay based on the cost of service. So there's no concept of really a market. It's just, what does it cost to produce and ship the power? Right. Take that average, charge that out to consumers. So it's sort of a regulated market. Here, it's whatever the market will bear. That means we go up and down. Other places where they have that, they've layered on something called a capacity market on top of that, or, or they have some other mechanism involved to provide some stability of reliability. And, and here we rely on price excursions happening every once in a while, which while consumers never like to hear that, it is necessary to have periods of high prices so that generators can recoup all of their fixed costs. 
that they're not collecting when prices are low continuously. So we have these periods of high prices that bring a return to those generators and also drive new investment. It means there's an awful lot more volatility for folks. And we go through periods like we've been in the last two years. And I would offer that starting in March 2024, we're going to reverse. We're going to go start into another period of lower prices come March. So we flip back and forth, which is tough for consumers to take. It's interesting. Uh, four years ago, uh, the, the Alberta government, uh, because, of course, we just had a change in government, uh, that we were on the on the cusp of some structural changes uh, and the uh, the new government decided not to proceed with that. But when you hear talk now of, of some structural changes, does it feel maybe we're going back to, to what we almost got in 2019 or what, what do you take it to mean? Yeah, we definitely are. So at the time, um, they were going down a path of adding a capacity market. And what that would have done is it would have removed the legality of economic withholding because there would be no merit for it anymore. So we would no longer have economic withholding, but you'd have this capacity market. So there would be the capacity market adds costs to consumers, but you wouldn't have these extremely high costs in the energy market occur as frequently. Um, they decided against that uh, when the Kenny government came in. They, they scrapped that and said, no, stick with the status quo. Now they're revisiting it again, as, as you know. I don't think, and this is me speculating, I don't think we're headed back to what was proposed in, was that 2017, 18, yeah. the capacity market. But I think there will be changes made to the market design that do two things. One, it seems pretty clear the government's been unhappy with the heat they've received over economic withholding. And so they're going to do something to eliminate that. But there's also a recognition you you can't simply eliminate that because we do need it at times. We do need occasional high prices to recoup fixed costs, just like any market. You have to recover that somehow. And so there's probably going to be some other mechanism that comes into our market. This will be at levels that the consumers don't necessarily see and face, but it has ramifications on consumers because whatever market design is chosen, if it's a really volatile price like we've had in the past versus some stable price, that makes a difference. If we load up additional costs from contracts, uh, strategic reserves, which is something that Texas has been looking at, all of those costs will ultimately get loaded onto consumers. So. Um, I'll be watching this very closely because while it will mostly fall out of the public eye, it can have huge ramifications on our ultimate bills, depending on how this new market design is structured. Oh, yeah. I I wonder, too, I mean, is there any measurable impact of the government's moratorium on approvals for new renewables projects? So that didn't make any of the existing supply go away. I think the concern maybe is about discouraging that investment. But has that had an impact uh, as of late at all? Too too soon to see on the actual market because, like you said, there was so much that was already either in construction or approved. Almost a doubling of the existing capacity that is installed was behind it in terms of approved and in construction. So, mm-hmm. and that's still happening. So we're still seeing that come on, and that's part of that influx of supply I'm talking about next year. That and three very large gas plants coming online is is what's going to drive prices down. So we haven't seen um, the moratorium really affect prices now. Um, whether it's affected investment or whether it's affected um, people continuing in the regulatory process, that, that's uh, that's another question. I don't have a great eye into that. 
I know there was a, a huge queue um, uh, you know, almost seven times the current installed capacity of solar was in the queue in terms of waiting for approval. I don't know how many of those projects are falling out of the queue as a result of the uncertainty. We'll see what the new year has in store. We'll leave it there for now. Uh, Professor Schaefer, always appreciate the insight. Thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Thanks for having me. Okay, there you go. That's uh, Blake Schaefer, uh, Associate Professor, Department of Economics, University of Calgary, also with the School of Public Policy, a focus on electricity markets, energy transitions, and climate policy. So kind of an overview of, of what's going on in Alberta's markets and what might change. But yeah, and, and you can uh, find him on Twitter at BC Schaefer, S-H-A-F-F-E-R. He had an interesting uh, graph post just looking at where power prices are going. That there is a lot of new supply coming on in the new year. And so the expectation is that we're going to see, you know, pretty considerable drop in prices uh, through 2024, even in, into 2025. So it, it does become, it's, it's tricky because as someone points out on the text line that economic withholding has no impact on fixed rate contracts. I'd be interested to know the percentage of Albertans still on the regulator rate option, right? Which is where you see those fluctuations where, you know, toward the end of 2023 and then again in the middle of 2023, two big peaks in the regulator rate option, uh, even surpassing 30 cents per kilowatt hour. Now, if you were locked in, then, you know, that didn't impact you. But when did you lock in? When does that contract end? And so when is it good to not be locked in? Like if you're locked in and the regulated rate option is a much higher rate, then you're laughing. But if you're locked in and, you know, the rate drops below that, you're going to be pretty frustrated. I mean, the good news is you can get out of that if you want to. But it's the, you know, it's the tricky part about knowing when it makes sense or how long to lock in for, uh, all those factors. So recently, the Bank of Canada had their final rate policy decision of 2023, decided to continue to hold their uh, trend-setting interest rate of 5%, 5.0%. So as we head into the new year, Right, there's some question about where this all goes from here. Now, the Bank of Canada governor made some reference to the possibility that they could increase rates further if they felt it was necessary. But the general census seems to be uh, that things are going to go in the other direction in 2024, that as we get closer to a finish line of sorts on the inflation fight, that might allow the Bank of Canada to start bringing rates back down. That depends on, on a lot of things, obviously. Nothing's guaranteed, but I think that's the hope. So that all depends, I guess, on whether we're truly close to that finish line when it comes to inflation. You know, things generally seem to be trending in the right direction, at least the latest consumer price index numbers we had from StatsCan uh, would indicate that. Uh, but we're not quite there just yet. But there's a new report out from the C.D. Howe Institute that takes a closer look uh, at where we're at in the fight against inflation and whether things are indeed uh, heading in the right direction. Uh, the report's called Inflation is Easing. Let us count the ways. You can read more at cdhow.org. But joining us on the line here this afternoon, very pleased to welcome in the program, Jeremy Cronick, Associate Vice President, Director of the Center on Financial and Monetary Policy at the C.D. Howe Institute, cdhow.org. Jeremy, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. 
So we get the, the numbers from StatsCan, right? We get the headline number of what the uh, consumer price index is, and that's kind of gives us the apples to apples comparison to previous months. But you know, once you dive down, it's a, it's a story of a lot of different trend lines. So what, what can we say with some certainty as to where those trend lines are pointing? Well, I mean, cer- <laughs> certainty is a, a, a tricky word, but I will say that if you look at um, a couple different things, you can kind of see the path that inflation is likely to go. And for the most part, this tightening cycle by the Bank of Canada, these rate hikes have all been about getting demand back in line with supply. Mm-hmm. So for demand, let's look at the economy, right? And if you look at the economy, you look at the economic growth numbers in, in the third quarter, uh, they're pretty weak. Um, and really, they would have been weaker if not for uh, government expenditures, right? Business investment was weak. Exports were weak. So you've got a lot of softening in the economy. Uh, and if you look at credit growth, um, that was very weak. So real credit growth was actually negative. Um, and that's um, that's something that we, we haven't seen in 30-plus in years. So I think there are a lot of signs uh, that, the, that the economy is softening. And when that happens... Uh, inflation will continue to fall, uh, you know, in my opinion, back towards the the 2% target. I mean, does that suggest that the interest rate hikes have have worked? I mean, are are the the higher interest rates playing a role in in that slowdown? Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, I think the the higher interest rates are certainly playing a role in those real credit growth numbers that I mentioned earlier. Um, I think it's also playing a role in the sense that people uh, know who have mortgages that they're going to be renewing. Um, and so they know they're going to be renewing at, at, at a higher mortgage uh, as a percentage of their income than they did before. And so there's some cautionary savings that are happening. People are pulling back in anticipation of that. Um, so certainly I think the rate hikes are, you know, have done their, you know, have and continue to do their job. But I mean, you know, certainly the Bank of Canada governor in, in you know, the recent rate policy announcement didn't seem quite as as optimistic. I don't know if they're just they're worried about messaging or they're they're being a little more cautious. What did you make of of the tone of of the governor's comment? Yeah, so I mean, I won't necessarily you know speak for the governor or governing council, but I do think as a central bank, you want to make sure, and it's the right thing to do, that people understand that um, you know if the inflation numbers don't continue to go uh, the way we expect that the bank stands ready uh, to continue this fight, right? We don't want the assumption to be that interest rates are going to fall back down real quick mm-hmm. and people start, you know, you know, reversing kind of the behaviors that are going to allow inflation to get, get us back to 2%, right? Because that'll keep inflation elevated and potentially even increasing, heading in the other direction. Right. Um, you know, and that's the exact opposite thing that we want. So we look at the inflation numbers and there are a few different ways to look at it, right? But, uh, you know, one one way is, is to take out the interest rate impact because as much as interest rates are meant to slow down inflation, higher mortgage costs do also contribute to inflation. So if we right. take out the impact of the policy, what does that tell us about where the overall inflation numbers are at? Yeah, so, I mean, we, we, we did that calculation, as you mentioned, stripping out, um, you know, stripping out the effects uh, of those mortgage costs, and we had it at 2.2% uh, uh, in, in October. Um, and so that's obviously, you know, very close to the to the bank's two percent target. Uh, so that's one measure that certainly I think is, uh, you know, indicative of the path we're headed in. But but I will say, you know, if you look at some of the the core measures that kind of strips out the really volatile elements of of the CPI, those are still hovering in the three and a half. They're on a downward trend, but they're still hovering well above two percent and, and even above the top end of the range of one to three. And so that. 
you know, the, there are signs there that there's still some pressures. You know, wage growth was still pretty high. I believe it was, uh, you know, 4.8%. So, you know, there's still signs. It's not a, it's not perfect that all the variables are pointing in the same direction. But I think on the, if you think about it from a macro overall perspective, I think the signs are that aggregate demand is going is, is shifting down, and that'll sort of bring it back in line with supply. And hopefully that means we're we're at two percent. Yeah. What about the energy uh, price factor? And, and oil prices can be volatile at the best of times. They, they've, they've been really soft as of late, and maybe that'll make the, um, you know, the November inflation numbers look even better. And, you know, just by the same token, we could see a, a spike in oil prices that might, you know, paint a very different picture. But how, how relevant is that in terms of how it affects inflation either way? Yeah, so I think that's where the bank will, will focus more on the core inflation measures that kind of that 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 do strip out those volatile components, right? And focus there on on really the underlying uh, inflation, sort of look through those kinds of effects, right? Uh, so I, I wouldn't, I don't, I'm not sure it's going to matter too much for how the bank interprets uh, the data that's coming in and whether sort of their rate hikes are 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 appropriate at five, you know, whether the overnight rate at five percent is appropriate to get us back to two percent. I just don't think that that's going to be a major factor is monetary policy a, a factor still has has that made the bank's job more difficult is is it putting any inflationary pressure on still at this point uh, the, the fiscal, mean, policy? fiscal policy fiscal yeah, policy yeah, yeah. sorry uh, yeah i mean so so i i think that to the extent um that maybe the bank would like it's probably the fiscal policy probably hasn't been as helpful as you would hope right uh, again, if you, you, you know, if you think about what I, the, the point I was making about you know demand and supply and being in line, well, the more government spending that's happening, if it's really spending and not the kind of investment, right? Uh, if it's more on the expenditure side, mm-hmm. well, that's more fueling of inflation than anything else. It's sort of it's creating a bigger gap between demand and supply. So, I think certainly fiscal policy could have been more helpful, uh, you know, in this fight. Um, but I, I, you know, I don't think on its own it was the principal cause. I think it's it's just it would have been something that uh, we would have liked to have seen less of in order to uh, you know make it easier on the bank and and, and on how, how high interest rates have to go to get inflation back to target. We'll see what the November December numbers look like and where the bank decides to go in 2024. Much more is mentioned at cdhow.org. Uh, Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me. All the best. Uh, Jeremy Cronick, Associate Vice President and Director of the Center on Financial and Monetary Policy of the C.D. Howe Institute. Uh, so, yeah, they're sounding a little more bullish than the Bank of Canada. Maybe the bank needs to, to just sound a little more cautious uh, just to temper expectations, that sort of thing. So as they point out, year-over-year inflation after stripping out increased mortgage costs was only 2.2% in October. The seasonally adjusted consumer price index actually fell from September to October. Uh, Core inflation measures, including the bank's preferred CPI trim and CPI median, were still above the top end uh, of the bank's target range, but both were down in October. So that's encouraging, too. We'll see. And, And there's an expectation here, I think, as we've seen with sliding oil prices, that might make the November numbers look even more promising. And, you know, the bank's job is to sort of uh, sort those kinds of swings out to really try to understand what's going on here. But this report says, look, things are trending in the right direction. We're making progress on inflation. That progress should bring some rate cuts with it in 2024. (music) 
2023 has been another year of tightness on the monetary policy front. Uh, the Bank of Canada, of course, has uh, raised its uh, trend-setting rate all the way up to 5 percent to try to get inflation under control. Now, as 2023 draws to a close, there's some indication that it's working in terms of uh, bringing down interest rates, but what, or rather the uh, inflation rate. But what else is it bringing down? Because, of course, uh, in, in partly by design, higher interest rates do slow the economy. Uh, so we are seeing that softening there. So as much as inflation is coming uh, under control, you get those consequences as well. Uh, the higher interest rates are clearly affecting homeowners and those with mortgages. And so those who have renewed and now, now find themselves uh, under some considerable financial pressure, and certainly those on variable rates. And uh, there's still a lot of mortgages to come up for renewal in 2024. So what impact will that have? What impact is this already having on the economy? Well, some interesting new research from TD, TD Economics attempts to quantify that. It finds a direct correlation between mortgage renewals and reduced consumer spending, which by extension obviously can uh, further slow the economy. James Orlando is a senior economist and director at TD Economics, economics.td.com. You can read this study and much more there. But uh, James Orlando on the line with us here this afternoon. Great to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Yeah, happy to be there. Uh, when we look at the bigger question, I guess, uh, of uh, household debt and those high levels we're already seeing in the economy, I mean, first of all, to what extent is mortgage a part of that? And what is the risk to the economy from, from those high levels? Yeah, well, I think everyone talks about how uh, housing is, is a big risk to the Canadian economy. And the reason why is when we look at the amount of debt that Canadians have taken on, um, a lot of the debt is related to housing. So we have almost two, sorry, three trillion dollars of debt that households have, which is a lot of money. Um, and about 75% of that is dedicated to paying for our houses. And so what that means is that when you have a lot of debt, that means a lot of your income that you're gaining through your job is going to have to be dedicated to, to pay down that debt. And so right now we're spending about 15% of our incomes uh, to pay off our to pay our debts down right now, and you know I, I can I compare that to where the U.S. was before the housing crisis, and their debt levels were, were closer to 13 percent, so we're already above U.S. levels, and we know how that kind of turned out yeah. for for the American economy and for Americans in general. So I think that's why you know this has always been flagged as a big risk because you know we were committing so much of our incomes to this. So if you have a shock to the economy or shocks to people's incomes. You worry about people's ability to pay. Right. And so that uh, that number we see now in terms of percentage uh, of income going to pay debts, that, that's increased in recent years, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it, it has. So, you know, we um, I guess anyone that's really followed what's happened in Canadian housing knows that house prices had gone up since the pandemic started. Right. So the work from home uh, movement caused a lot of people to um, increase the the size of their houses, the, the search for space, um, house prices due to low mortgage rates went up tremendously, but people still kept, still kept buying houses. So, you know, we've gone, you know, from where was it? 2020, we were at close to 13% of our incomes being spent towards housing up to 15%. Now, that doesn't sound like much, but it's a huge amount of our of our money dedicated to, uh, to spending on, on that, spent on housing, opposed to spending on other things like, you know, buying you know, whatever you want, going to dinner, you know, buying a new TV. So 
because we're spending more of our incomes on housing, we can't spend as much on other things that we might have wanted to do. Right. So how do you go about analyzing that then, the impact on spending habits as homeowners, mortgage holders uh, renew or, or face higher rates? Yeah. So, it, so we already started with the fact that people have high levels of debt. And so as interest rates rise, whoever resets will have to, in, will have to increase the payments that they make for their houses. Um, and so what we wanted to do, and like, we hear a lot about this, like every, every time you go to say like a dinner party, you're, people are talking about, you know, what's happened with the mortgage market, what's happened with Canadian housing. And, you know, we saw it in the GDP data. We're like, okay, um, consumer spending is coming down. Um, we're, it's really been a drag on the economy because like, as you, as you know, uh, real GDP came out a couple weeks ago and it, and it showed that we had a contraction in the economy over the summertime. And consumer spending was was very weak during that time. And so people are saying, okay, consumer spending is weak. This must be because of higher mortgage rates. And what we wanted to do was go deeper, you know, really quantify this impact. And so um, at TD, what we did was we went through all the credit card data and all the mortgage data, and we followed people through time to see who was spending and who wasn't spending and see how much they were increasing and cutting back their spending. But the beauty of this, and the really interesting point, is we're able to classify cohorts of people based on the year in which they reset their mortgages. So I'm going on here, but I, I'm interested in this. Hope you don't mind. Yeah. But 2021, we had the people that reset their mortgages, and we saw how much they've cut back spending. Okay, And they have cut back. They cut back a little bit. Um, people in 2022, when they reset, they cut back even more. But the people in 2023, when rates really got high, they cut back the most. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, at the same time, people that don't have a mortgages have increased their spending. So clearly, I'm able to tease out who is cutting back spending more. Um, but the real telling thing, and this goes to, to our forecast for how the Canadian economy is going to go um, next year, is that the people that will reset in 2020, 2024 have really not adjusted their spending very much at all. So they're not really doing much precautionary savings in anticipation of their resets. And so this to us means that if they start pulling back spending, you know, at a level similar to what the 2024 or 2023 cohort has done, this means even weaker consumer spending for next year. And that really goes to our, our weaker economic forecast that we're expecting for 2024 in general. Right. When we look at the total number of mortgages uh, that have would have renewed, I guess, by the end of this year and those still to come by the end of next year, like there, there's still a lot out there. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what we know is like the interesting thing about all this stuff is we, we do have data on who has reset and who hasn't reset. So close to 50% of Canadians that have mortgages have reset already, okay? Um, now that's going to go up to about 65% next year, okay? And then the year after that, it's going to get to almost 90%. So we're, we're moving more and more people into this um, into this, these new reset buckets, right? Um so it's a significant amount of people. We're looking at, you know, more than 20% of people that have mortgages are going to reset next year. And so it's not an insignificant number of people. Mm-hmm. And if you're one of those people that they are resetting on your mortgages for 2024, uh, you're probably wondering how much this is going to impact you, right? And so and I think this is something that's like on the minds of Canadians that do have mortgages and on the minds of Canadians in general, because we want to know how the economy is going to do next year. And we want to make sure that we avoid recession. So this is definitely a big, uh, a big headwind facing many people and, and the economy in general. 
Well, it is. I mean, despite that, though, you you still believe that it, it won't be enough to to tip the economy into recession. So, despite all of this, we we may still avoid that contraction. Yeah, uh, you know, there's a few ways of looking at this. So, when you look at how much how the economy has done, say over the last twelve months, um, if you do it on adjusted for the number of people in Canada, we've been contracting. The Canadian economy has been in contraction um, over the last 12 months um, because people are pulling back spending. Mm-hmm. But we have this uh, positive benefit in Canada, which is, which is population growth. And population growth has been running. We know, you know 1.2 million new Canadians have, have uh, joined the country. And all these new Canadians, they're, they're new consumers as well you know they're they're getting jobs they're working they're they're um they're spending money they're buying stuff and what that does is it it provide it raises the floor for the canadian economy notwithstanding that people that have mortgages in canada are going through a very challenging shift right now and so when i do the math i'm trying to figure out are the mortgage resets and the expected cuts to spending based on people that will reset next year is it enough to tip the economy into recession and the answer that i found is no we're going to go through a weak time period. We're going to be flirting with recession potentially, but it's not enough to really um, send the economy into a, into that negative spiral that we always worry about. So it is something that's going to be challenging, but it's not um, the disaster scenario that everyone's fearing. How much hinges on what the Bank of Canada decides to do here? They're they're holding the rate for now, as we know. Uh, you know, the governor has talked about they they could still increase if they see a need to, but you know, I think there's also a lot of expectation we may see some. Uh, some rate reductions in 2024. Yeah, when you're looking at the the economic forecasts that you know that we put out, and you're looking at the headwinds that we're showing, so early 2024, well, 2024 in general is going to be a a really uh, a weak year for economic growth. Yeah, you know, you're probably going to get the unemployment rate continuing to rise. Yeah, you might get job losses. We've been hearing more and more about job losses across the country. Um, in that environment, that is an environment absolutely the Bank of Canada would be cutting interest rates in. Okay. Um, at the same time, we've already had inflation come down to much more manageable levels, around 3%. So if the economy weakens and you get inflation coming down in this downward trajectory towards the Bank of Canada's 2% target, the Bank of Canada should be cutting interest rates. And this is something that would significantly benefit the analysis that we did about when people reset it's what mortgage rate are you resetting it and we know if the bank of canada cuts interest rates that reset stress that people would go under is be much less and so our view is we had the bank of canada cutting just a few months from now we think there's enough there's enough signs in the economy that things are going to start moving in the direction such that by april of 2024, the Bank of Canada is going to start cutting its policy rate, which is going to be much better for people that, for example, that have variable rate mortgages, and it's going to be better for people that have already or that are getting ready to reset on their their fixed payment mortgages. An important new book about the state of privacy and how much things are changing in the digital age, and especially now in the era of artificial intelligence, uh, that we've got a sense of complacency we need to shake ourselves out of because things are are moving fast and we need to catch up. 
Uh, the book is called The Privacy Fallacy, Harm and Power in the Information Economy. Joining us to talk more about these issues is the author of that book, uh, Ignacio Cofoni, is Canada Research Chair in AI Law and Data Governance at McGill University. Professor Cofoni, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. Thank you very much for having me. In terms of, you know, the point we're at here and just how much things have changed or are changing, because part of what you argue is that our privacy laws, even a lot of our assumptions around these issues are very quickly becoming outdated, maybe already are. They're certainly outdated. Uh, things have changed enormously in the last couple of decades about how companies and governments handle their information. And it's not only that the way that our privacy laws deal with the information predates AI, which already has sufficient changes. Many of these rules even predate the internet. Mm -hmm. Many of the privacy laws that govern our data are modeled after one-to-one -one interactions between one customer and one company. Like when you go buy a pair of shoes and they ask if you want to give your phone number to be part of a loyal customers program. But the way that data works now is based on inference about us. So not information that we give companies, but information that they guess about us based on all the little bits of information that we give, like our likes and the pictures that we post. Uh, and all of that is not protected by our privacy laws because first, uh, we don't know what companies can infer about us. Mm -hmm. And second, because what we agree and not agree to share or not share um, doesn't cover those inferences, only covers the information that we disclose. Why does all of this have so much value? Why is technology around all of this e evolving so rapidly? Because information has endless profit possibilities. So any information that a company gets from us means that not only they can monetize products and services right now, but it also means that with the ability to aggregate and make inferences with AI, they can add it to a host of other information to have profit possibilities forever. And this goes from the very basic showing you an ad right now for something that you may be able to buy to the more complicated assembling profiles about individual persons and then selling them to data brokers on how, or buying them from data brokers for are a lot of money sometimes. You mentioned AI and, and you know, those inferences uh, now that, that this technology can start to draw. I mean, is, is AI kind of supercharging that then? Yes. Uh, before AI became widespread, companies could have some inferences. They could guess some things about us based on what we disclose. They could guess that um, if I like a certain type of music, I'm likely to be Latino. They could guess that if I buy certain things, my income bracket is more likely to be this or that. If I like these other things, I could be likely to be LGBTQ. But the thing about AI is that it supercharges the ability to process data, which means that we can process a lot more data than before at the same time and we can create inferences that no one can anticipate. Uh, and this goes from data as innocuous as the accelerometer in your phone and your GPS location into information as risky as what is your risk for Alzheimer's disease. How do we possibly not just guard against that, but legislate against that? Well, I think the way to legislate against that is to stop relying 
on each individual person having to make choices to minimize risks for them, because that's impossible. Our laws want us to make choice about what information we can disclose or not, to accept the data uses that are good for us and reject the ones that are bad for us. But today it is impossible for us to discern them. So the way to legislate it is to create mechanisms of responsibility when things go wrong. If a company has a data practice that ends up creating harm for a lot of people, then the answer shouldn't be, oh, but they all agree to it. The answer should be, well, what are the mechanisms that the company could have done to prevent that harm? And if it didn't enact those mechanisms, then we should make it responsible for that harm. I mean, do countries need to do that in conjunction? Like, if, I mean, if Canada were to do this, would it make enough of a difference if, you know, the Americans weren't or the Europeans weren't? <laughs> That's a great question. And uh, yes and no. Um, so every time we try to regulate technology, we have this uh, threat that if we regulate technology too much, then companies may leave. And that is true to a certain extent. But the reality is that companies make a lot of money based on Canadians' personal information. So as long as the ways that we make them responsible for the harms they cause doesn't exceed all the amount of money that they can normally make, they have no strong reason to leave, even if Canada were the only one to legislate it this way. Of course, it would be better if, if countries move together. Uh, it doesn't need to be all countries in the world at the same time, but if two or countries do it at the same time, it certainly makes it a bit easier. But I don't think we should be extremely afraid of the way that good legislation may make companies leave because we have different ways to enact legislation that is more protective but also doesn't turn that expensive so, so for example with the legislation that we have right now companies do have to have lots of checks in advance they need to check that they acquire consent in this and that way, which is useless, but it's expensive. Uh, imagine the number of times that you click agree to cookies. Mm -hmm. They have to check that they follow certain procedures. You could remove some of those protections that are expensive from the day to day, but are not that helpful for people in favor of others that could be expensive only if harm happens. And then companies would have better incentives to avoid that harm. How do we measure harm, or what, what does harm mean in this context? Uh, that's the thing. Uh, it can mean a universe of things. So it could mean the most classic identity theft or credit card fraud. It could mean a data breach where a company didn't enact sufficient security measures. It could mean mishandling health data so that people later on have an increase in their premium. I think the key there is to not only pay attention to tangible harms when they happen later on, because often they happen late in the future, but what practices are exposing people to harm without sufficient safeguards to do it? So what entities are profiting from people's information and putting them at risk without enacting any security measures to avoid the harm happening downstream? And then we should address that before the downstream tangible harm, harms take place. 
you know, with how quickly all of this is unfolding, um, you know, there's, I think the public is often confused about all of this and, and you know, policymakers are, are confused about all of this. So maybe that's one of the reasons why we're, we're playing catch up. But is it is it complacency or is it just, you know, it's it's difficult to stay on top of what's happening with the technology? I think it is genuinely difficult to stay on top. Uh, and part of that is, a matter of how we decide to govern the technology. I think we for a long time made the mistake of trying to come up with rules that are very specific to one technology or the other. Well, what we need to do is to see how the technology changes our economic relationships, how the technology changes relationships of power, and then try to regulate those social relationships that change the technology, not the specific technology itself. So for example, we shouldn't worry so much about what are the specific technical characteristics of cookies to try to legislate them, because what matters about cookies is that they track people, and the way to track people may be different three years from now. So what matters is when do we think that it's okay for people to be tracked, not what are the specific characteristics of cookies so that we can have a very specific regulation that prohibits this or that way to do them. What do you see as a level of urgency here? Like, I mean, is there a point of no return where if we wait too long that this is just going to be too difficult to regulate? Or where, where, where does it need to go, do you think? The longer that we wait, the more difficult that it becomes. That's why I, I think it is very important that Canada thinks seriously about two bills that are in Parliament right now. One, to modify the federal private sector privacy bill and another one to create a legislative framework to regulate AI. Uh, it is not too late to do it. It's probably never too late to do it. But the more that we wait, the more that we create path dependencies that make it more difficult to shift. Imagine that this was us regulating the automobile industry a few decades ago, and we're thinking that it may be important to mandate airbags and seatbelts. It is never too late to do it, but the longer that we allow for cars to be built without seatbelts and airbags, the longer that uh, we allow companies to develop assembly lines that don't require them, then we're making it more expensive for them to shift later. We're making it culturally more difficult to explain why it's important, and we're leaving more people that didn't have those securities before. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.